Yeah, welcome uh, Joseph Cabaret today, along with uh, newcomer Ken Carl. Dr. Carl's going to introduce PTSD, a newcomer. He's going to be getting in the podcasting world, uh, and welcome to you. Joseph Cabaret's been on before. He's an incredible resource, uh, a well-experienced individual that is not only boarded in addiction, but also in pain and anesthesia. Dr. Carl is an interventionalist. We're going to talk a little bit about PTSD, tolerance, dependency, pain in general, and we're going to just have a good discussion here. This was at the annual meeting of American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. Always a good place for good people to talk about what's relevant, coming, and those challenges that we have. And so let's get to it. Back again is Joe, and Joe is one of my favorite in- interviewees because he's so animated. He's fun to listen to. <laughs> we just did a um, panel discussion at the uh, 25th anniversary meeting of American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. It's been great. We talked about buprenorphine. Uh, what we did was get into really the weeds on mixed or uh, medication-assisted uh, treatment in mixed patient populations. Um, Joe did a fantastic job, but we are going to deviate a little bit um, uh, on some really important concepts that we don't talk enough about and we don't give enough uh, chops to, and that's uh, central pain or pain in the brain. Tell us about yourself, Joe. My name's Joe Cabaret. I'm an interventional pain specialist with an anesthesia background. I'm also board certified in addiction medicine by the American Board of Preventive Medicine. Um, I practice in Camarillo, California, and I, my, I'm primarily an interventional pain physician. I don't really have an addiction practice, but I do treat some patients who come in identifying with substance use disorder. That's an important uh, distinction to make. We are uh, not multi-specialty. We're just um, resilient into the fact that we have a practice that is malleable that can address different aspects of what walks through the door, right? I think anybody who's prescribing a controlled substance would be well served with, you know, a little bit of education about addiction medicine because these are substances that can be problematic whether there's a substance use disorder or not. They lead to dependence and tolerance, which is a tough place to be. The drug you're taking is making your pain worse, but you can't stop taking it. And so my background in addiction medicine helps me to manage patients who are using controlled substances for their pain. Uh, yeah, so you're a pain specialist, basically. I'm a pain specialist. That's yeah. really my, my day job. Okay, so what does that entail? By the way, you know, you left out the fact that we went to a concert at the Lithuanian Embassy last night. I did on purpose. (laughs) We did. Uh, But you're right, uh, the Lithuanian uh, concert, it was with children and uh, Lithuanian superstars that were not only musically talented, but they were magically talented. They were doing things that I could only dream of doing. Uh, Fun to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, that was good. That was fun. We met the ambassador. Unexpected, what a delightful woman. Delightful surprise, yeah. All right, so tell right. us a little bit about um, pain specialist, uh, the central pain thing. 
yeah, pain you know, in the brain. Again, this is probably the fact that I, you know, my addiction background coming in and contaminating, or should I say, enhancing my interventional pain practice. You know, I think that when a patient comes through the door, when I first meet a, a patient who's identifying as a pain patient, coming in and saying, "I have, I'm here for," you know. Uh, treatment of my chronic pain or my acute pain. I'm living with pain and I need help. Uh, it behooves us, I think, to first and foremost, before we do anything else, try and stratify that patient in terms of their psychosocial, spiritual spectrum, right? Where they are on the spectrum between purely central pain and purely biomechanical peripheral pain. And most people are somewhere on that spectrum. Very few are purely one or the other. And it's kind of like a VAS score, you know, go from 0 to 10. What's a VAS score? A, a visual analog scale. And that's something that, you know, sometimes pain doctors use. I'm not sure how advisable it is to use it. But nonetheless, it's one way to try and, you know, stratify a person's pain, 0 being no pain and 10 being the worst pain you could possibly imagine. Well, we, we use a line on a piece of paper and we kind of make a mark. We ask the patient to make a mark. How long is that line? It Ten centimeters. Okay. It's supposed to be. Uh, it's not really. But, I mean, how it come everybody's anyway. at 10 over 10 or 11 over 10? Why are patients t 11 over 10? Yeah. Because they're, they're trying to tell you something, yeah. right? If the scale goes up to 10 and they're saying 11, that doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of reasons why they might say 11 out of 10 while they're sitting there, you know, comfortably with their legs crossed uh, discussing their pain with you. When you say 10 is the worst pain you can possibly imagine, you know, we're talking about you're screaming at the top of your lungs like in a horror movie or getting your legs chopped off with a chainsaw. That's a 10. Mm -hmm. So people are using these. That's why I say the, this visual analog scale or numeric rating scale is another way where you use numbers, you know, is really kind of limited in its value. But, uh, you know, pain is subjective. It's hard to really get an objective measurement. So we rely on these, these subjective reports. I think a lot of patients who are identifying with 11 out of 10 are really, uh, you know, there's other factors influencing. Their, it's not, they're not just describing their pain. They're, they're trying to achieve other goals with that. Yeah, they are. And um, those can be something that require a walk down the curiosity pathway. Uh, what the hell is the curiosity pathway? Well, it's like um, you're not trying to figure them out. You know, they are... Uh, patients that come to you with difficult problems, what you're trying to figure out is a complex problem you can't see, touch, feel, or measure, and that's called pain. This feeds right into what we were talking, what I was talking about, uh, Hans. You know, central pain, right? We're talking about uh, complex pain. This isn't just I dropped a bowling ball on my foot and now my foot hurts. These are patients who have who are living with pain chronically and develop sometimes something called chronic pain syndrome. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have predisposing factors prior to developing pain that, uh, you know, enhance the distress that they feel about their symptoms. So I'm talking about distress management. You know, if you come to my office, it says interventional pain doctor on the door. But it perhaps it really should say distress doctor. Distress specialist. Distress specialist. I mean, that's we're not treating pain. You know, we're treating distress related to pain. People come to the doctor because they're in distress about their symptoms. Well, is it pain or distress? Well, it, it could be both, but how much of each, right? Is it just biomechanical peripheral pain generator in a perfectly healthy, if that person exists, right? Perfectly healthy, 
person without any substance use disorders, without any mental health issues, perfectly well adjusted socially and, you know, spiritually healthy. That person doesn't really exist, but, you know, that would be the extreme example of someone with purely biomechanical pain. Well, okay. So there you have somebody in distress. And distress comes in a lot of um, ways, Uh, situational depression, anxiety, and PTSD. I know you want to talk about that. What is that? You know, I I think that uh, many of our patients are you know have a have undiagnosed PTSD, and it's kind of like when you're looking at a fluoro image. You know, if you show that to a lay person and say say show me the right L3 transverse process, they're not going to be able to point to it. And if you're looking at a very you know osteoporotic patient, I might not even be able to see it. But if I know I'm looking for it, I find it. Right? If I know what it looks like and where it should be, we call it anatomy by expectation. I can, I can look at that image and go, yeah, there it is. I see it because I'm looking for it, and I know what I'm looking for. And it's similar with PTSD in our practices. I think that you know, a lot of patients are coming in with a lot of distress, in many cases related to a history of PTSD, especially adverse childhood experiences. And they're bringing that distress that you know, they were overwhelmed at some point in their, in their lives emotionally, and it caused dysfunctional, you know, uh, coping mechanisms and now they're bringing that to everything in their life you know if they miss the bus it's 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 a catastrophe if they you know uh have a personal conflict it's it's catastrophic and when they have symptoms painful symptoms it's catastrophic you know they call it catastrophizing symptoms what a word somebody made that damn word up but you call it a spectrum disorder probably yes this is part of that spectrum that i was discussing earlier where I think it behooves us to really sort of try at least to identify. And it's a fluid thing. Uh, you know, at each visit, I'm constantly, you know, present and adjusting my differential diagnosis on every patient. And so I think this should be part of our differential. And we should be considering this before we consider all of our biomedical interventions that we have. You know, this is also skewing the results of our studies. If you put, you know, if I did a cataract surgery on every person who walked through the door, I probably wouldn't be able to produce very good evidence for cataract surgery being, you know, being something we should do. You have to select the patients who need a cataract surgery. And it's the same thing here. If someone comes in with pain in their foot and I put a, you know, some kind of device in to manage that on every single patient, the, the outcomes aren't going to be that good. And uh, so in a way, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot here with trying to, you know, treat everything like a nail and we're just a hammer. That's true. And so um, here we are. We have a patient walk through the door. Um, they're t- 10 over 10. We don't even know what that means. I keep telling people the Mancosi scale. Um, that is the worst pain you could possibly have. I mean, you're almost unconscious, that sort of thing. Yeah, I am. Or the patient that comes through the door, and every time they visit you, they're 5 over 5. Well, I just started treating. I've been doing injections. I've been giving you medication, but your pain scale hasn't changed. Well, what do we make of that? I don't know what to make of that, Hans. I think, you know, in each individual case, it's my job to try and understand what to make of that. And that's that's on a case-by-case basis. 
You're exactly right. But, and it's, I mean, we look at function, quality of life, restorative sleep capacity. We look at endurance. We look at range of motion. We look at that. But I'm telling you, a little old lady in pain, a little old lady in pain, you cannot ask her to touch her toes. Um, you can ask her if she likes to go to the grocery store, if she likes to enjoy the grandchildren. But the question set, the uh, experience that you want is very different than sometimes what's so obvious. Um, and you're right, you individualize it, don't you? You know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, now I'm going to that crossover again between, between addiction and pain. And I agree with you, Hans, that addiction and pain are cousins. I mean, they're very similar in the way they behave. I'm talking about chronic pain mm-hmm. and so uh, right now. And so, you know, in, in the addiction medicine world, we have these criteria, you know, placement criteria, treatment criteria. And based on certain patient characteristics, we use those criteria to place the patient in the appropriate level of care. And that might be in, in a hospital, that might be at an outpatient, you know, intensive outpatient treatment plan uh, program. I, you know, I think something like that could apply to pain medicine as well. person comes through the door and based on their addiction risk screening tools, based on their history of mental illness, based on their family history of addiction, on their family history of mental illness, based on the way you experience that patient, you know, based on their functional scores, on whatever functional you know, uh, criteria you're using, and based on their urine screens, based on their PDMP reports, you know, you synthesize... What's a PDMP report? A prescription drug monitoring program. Yeah, right. We've got to do that nowadays. And, you know, based on their diagnostic reports, you're, you're synthesizing all of this information, as much information as you can get about that patient, and trying to formulate sort of a stratification of that patient and saying, well... You're both, you know, two patients are coming in with right foot pain. That's 8 out of 10. And I might treat one patient completely differently than I treat the other patient based on these other factors. You're right. Examined history and physical. It all keeps coming back at us. How boring. But it's real. All right. Well, um, I'd like to introduce another physician from Baltimore area, and he'll tell you a little bit about himself and he's going to ask you um, some questions that I, I, I think are important uh, to uh, take us one step further. Hi, I'm Kenneth Carl. I'm a private practitioner in interventional pain medicine in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, welcome, Joseph. Thank you. So the post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, I, I agree with Patients uh, have a lot of psychological overlay. Yeah. It's not just the pain. Um, so what are some of the strategies you use to help the PTSD? Are there certain medications? Yeah. You know, first of all, the main thing is picking it up. You know, first I have to identify it. And I've gotten to the point where I can, I mean, it's like as soon as I walk in the room, I can see hypervigilance, you know, I can see patients who look more anxious, you know, you can pick up a lot of psychosocial overlay quickly. And then the next thing to do, and, you know, I've talked a lot about motivational interviewing over the last few days, is trying to get that patient to link their symptoms with their history of trauma. And that's not an easy thing to do. They really love their MRIs, they love their 
what previous physicians have diagnosed them with. And they, like, hug those diagnoses, and those diagnoses hug them back. It does something for them. And so trying to rip those out of their hands is a difficult thing to do. And you don't necessarily have to, but you do have to sort of, over time, get them to link their distress over their symptoms to their history of trauma. And it does. It does take time, a lot of time. It takes getting to know the patient. Yes, and their history and their their current lifestyle, past mm-hmm. lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and at what point do you feel like you might need some help, like from a psychiatrist, psychologist? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I like to get a psychologist involved early on if I can, the right psychologist. I like a psychologist who has, you know, who's trauma-informed and who knows how to use tools like uh, EMDR, which is eye movement, uh, desensitization and reprogramming, something to that effect. And, you know, there are other techniques as well, but that's a simple one that can be done, you know, in a room with two people and, and, and their finger, and it can be done with tapping or with sound or with, vis- you know, visual cues. And it's something, it's a way for people to process their trauma in a safer way, in a way that they, where they're able to dive deeper into you know, painful memories that many of them haven't confronted for years. They're terrified to go there. And so I do like to get others involved, but there's a lot I can do without involving other specialists. Like I said, the biggest hurdle is getting them to connect their trauma to their current symptoms. And you know, this is where motivational interviewing comes in. This is where patience comes in. I think a lot of us, including me, you know, we're looking for events in our lives like, oh, do that epidural and take my pain away. Or, you know, I want some event to come in and save me like this. I don't, I don't want to get involved in some lengthy process. And unfortunately, a lot of our problems in life, the solution is a lengthy process, a lifelong process. And if you do have PTSD, especially adverse childhood experiences, it is a lifelong Process. You're never going to graduate that program. Joe, you mentioned the motivational... Motivational interview. Interview. Thank you. Uh, can you explain what that is in lay terms for us? Motivational interviewing is a technique, and we, they use it a lot in psychiatric medicine and addiction medicine. It can be used for any encounter you have with another human being. It's really sales 101. It's, uh, you know, a way to lead people to uh, change in behavior. And it's really the concept is you have to make it their idea to change. If I sit there and point at you and say, listen, you got to change, people tend to put up resistance. And so there is a big, thick book written by a guy named Miller. It's very dry and difficult to read, but there are a lot of online resources you can get. And, you know, this works with husbands and wives and kids and patients. It works if someone isn't taking their insulin. It's a way to, you know, uh, lead people to healthier choices by making it their idea to change. So it involves stages and recognizing stages of change and behaving, you know, meeting the patient where they're at. I'm using a lot of lingo here and sort of based on where they are in terms of readiness for change, you behave differently. And when you see that they are ready to make a change, you pounce. Yeah, I think that can be very valuable for me to yeah. instill in my practice. Yes. Well, thanks uh, so much for for joining us today. Well, Joe, you know, it's always fun to see. It's fun to hang out with you. Um, I will bring up uh, the Lithuanian experience last night. It was so <laughs> nice for our host to take us there. We had a great time. But um, 
you know, the fact of the matter is each patient is an individual, right? Each patient is an individual. They have pain. We have to understand how it affects the brain, how it affects the stress they're experiencing. But most importantly, it, it is a spectrum. You've got to use the right interview techniques. And you've got to end out a very short visit with, uh, you know, goals in mind. Three, six, nine, and 12 months, as I always say, where are you going to be? And if you don't reach those goals, you've got to get to know why. You, finish it out for us. You know, I, I want to finish by just, you know, Kenneth asked me a really good question about what can we do if we identified, you know, PTSD or other psychosocial overlay in a patient. And yes, we can refer them to psychologists, trauma-informed psychologists, but we can also use a lot of things in our office. You know, our own personalities are uh, oftentimes the treatment plan. And we have, I have books that I, you know, I have little, tons of handouts in my office about meditation, handouts about uh, books that I recommend, books on trauma like The Body Keeps the Score, books on pain like uh, Healing Back Pain by John Sarno. And, uh, you know, tons of other resources that, are, that takes me a second to hand it to the patient and say, I think this is an important part of your treatment plan. It's going to enhance everything that I do. It, I tell them that it's best if we work as a team. You're the captain of the team and I'm the coach. And if we work together, there are things I can do to make your pain go as low as possible. And there are things you can do to learn to cope with the pain that you have. And if we meet in the, in the middle somewhere, we get the best results. That's a great answer. Well, uh, thanks again, Joe and um, Ken. Uh, you know, it's it's fun to have you on the podcast. It's fun to get you going here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of Ken on the uh, podcast uh, world soon. And uh, thanks again to everybody. Look forward to talking again. Thank you. Thanks, Joe and Ken. We look forward to having you on again. This complex world we live in is pain, addiction, depression. It's so many things. And I I can tell you, when we learn the motivational interviewing, we understand and recognize PTSD early. And we get a handle on these tough problems we have in pain medicine and understand them as qualified uh, uh, pain professionals do. And the added credentials of addiction, uh, that, that is a huge plus. We, we, get, we get places where we can use interventional procedures. We can decrease the opioid load. It all comes to the best outcome to improve quality of life, better, just a, a better day and a better place to be. And we thank you both for your work and everything you do. Thanks again. See you soon.